Happy New Year. This is Nicholas Webb, the author of Happy Work, How to Create a Culture of Happiness. And you're listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which has been named as one of the top marketing podcasts by Forbes and LinkedIn, amongst others. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since I get to read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message that you're a listener and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. This episode is sponsored by Marketing Architects, creators of the all-inclusive TV advertising concept that's so revolutionary, they wrote a book about it. I'll tell you more and how to get a copy of the book in a few minutes. Now, let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome back Nicholas Webb to talk about his book, Happy Work, How to Create a Culture of Happiness. Nicholas Webb is one of the top company culture experts in the world. He has been awarded the Global Guru's Top 30 designation for customer service for seven years in a row. Nick is the CEO of LearnLogic, an employee and company culture training advisory firm that works with some of the top brands to help them build world-class employee and customer experiences. As a technologist, he has been awarded more than 40 U.S. patents for consumer and technology products. He's also served as an adjunct professor for a health science university where he led the Center for Innovation. Nick is the author of multiple best-selling books in the area of business innovation, customer and employee experience, and leadership. He's also one of the top keynote speakers in the areas of business growth, innovation, future trends, and company culture. And interesting fact, he is now a member of the Marketing Book Podcast Four-Timers Club. Nick, congratulations wow. on happy work and welcome back to the Marketing Book Podcast. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. So you are in very good company right now in the Marketing Book Podcast wow. Four-Timers Club. That includes Dory Clark, Ann Janzer, and Anthony Anarino. But they're all, wow. they're all you know, authors. They write lots of books, so, you know... Yeah, I also did the quarantine thing too, if you remember. So well, yes, but now that doesn't count account. towards your um, frequent flyer miles. Uh, right. That yes, you were also on authors in quarantine getting cocktails, yeah. and I appreciate you <laughs> uh, having drinks with me one day during the lockdown. And my family thanks you for speaking to me, so that they didn't have to. <laughs> so uh, now you have been on for uh, you were on episode ninety two back in twenty sixteen, way back in twenty sixteen wow. for what That's customers right. crave. Yep. And then in 2019 for episode 243, the innovation mandate. Yep. And in uh, this last year, 2022, episode 375, what customers hate. And uh, I find myself talking about your books quite a bit. <laughs> so, yeah, I appreciate it. I noticed my name bouncing around listening to other interviews. I appreciate that. Oh, good, good. Yeah, well, they ke it keeps coming up, and particularly uh, What Customers Hate. It's just such an interesting uh, interesting book. <laughs> and, and, and just briefly, for folks that haven't heard that interview, and I'll include a link to all those interviews on this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. But, you know, we should all strive for a good customer experience. You're not you're not in, uh, opposed to that at all. But in doing so, start first with what customers really, really hate. And yeah. it might not be what they hate about your company, although you need to find out. There may be something about your business that they hate, but it might very likely be something about your category that they hate. Start with that, and you will have the greatest, uh, you'll have the most points on the board quickly. So you sent this book, and I you know, looked at it. I appreciate you sending it. And along with your uh, Lucid Leadership book uh, and uh, Happy Work, How to Create a Culture of Happiness. And I thought, oh, uh, that's not really a marketing book. And then I made the mistake. I, I started reading it. <laughs> Damn it, Webb. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and it is a marketing book because it brought to mind uh, I think David Packer, co-founder of Hewlett Packard, where he said marketing is too important to be left to the marketing department. Yeah, meaning you need a marketing department. There's nothing wrong with the the good folks working there, but it's something that management that that the whole organization needs to uh, understand in order to uh, grow and thrive. And then there's a 
Peter Drucker quote that I'm sure you've heard, you know, the really the father of business consulting, he made a an observation that some have argued has now been lost in the sands of time, but it your book brought this to mind as well, which is because the purpose of business is to create a customer, the business enterprise has two and only two basic functions, marketing and innovation. Marketing and innovation produce results. All the rest are costs. Marketing is is the distinguishing, unique function of the business. And not coincidentally, you've written a, an excellent book on innovation as well. So, Yeah, yeah, that's a great quote, and it's so true. Yeah. So I started reading this, and I started turning into a, a glass case of emotion, as uh, Ron Burgundy would say, because I've actually worked at some places that were just awful. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah. and in fact, I worked the last place I worked before I started my own business. It was just such a bad, toxic environment. I left to go out on my own. And it wasn't because I had some dream of an entrepreneur. I just, from a mental health standpoint, I couldn't stand it anymore. In fact, I had to stop reading the Dilbert cartoons in the Sunday paper. <laughs> yeah. And for the younger listener, the news used to come every Sunday in a big uh, newspaper. But I later interviewed Scott Adams, the Dilbert creator, about one of his books, and I told him about that. I said, I had to stop reading your cartoons for a couple of years. And he apologized, and I said, no, no, you're, you're not the reason for me not being able to read your book. So, But one thing I did want to mention was I have worked at places where I would have liked my CEO to get and read a book like this, but I yeah. wouldn't have wanted them to know I was sending it to them. And it brought to mind another book, great book on the show, a couple of years ago by Martin Lindstrom called The Ministry of Common Sense. And in that brilliant and funny book, he outlines how common sense has been, by and large, surgically removed from a lot of corporations, which yeah. creates a terrible <laughs> customer experience. And as I was interviewing him, I said the same thing. I said, you know, Martin, this is a great book. And I can just imagine a lot of listeners would like to have their CEOs get a copy of it, but they don't want them to know that maybe they don't have a lot of common sense in their company. And that's when Martin said, oh, Douglas, maybe you didn't see it on my website. I have a program (laughs) where you can buy a book and I will send it anonymously to your CEO. I just need their address. And so is that something where if people buy your book and give you a review, you might be able to then anonymously send a copy of this to their CEO if you have their address? Yeah, absolutely. So all you have to do, you can work out the details through your uh, show notes here, I think, and just go on to Amazon. I really don't make money pushing books, but I, I like the idea of, uh, of being able to have the community get ratings, honest ratings from from readers. So if you buy the book, provide a review, send a copy of the review, and then let me know where you want me to send this, and then we will send it in a plain <laughs> envelope. <laughs> Great. Right, yeah. And we'll send it to the CEO. And I think that, look, you know, the thing that's, uh, that we've had to realize in order to get CEOs on board, uh, they need to understand what's in it for them. And I think the book does a good job of inventorying how we can increase profitability, how we can build predictable and scalable growth, how we can attract mission-critical talent, and so on. So, there's so many benefits to this. Once they get it, it sort of speaks in that CEO language because the first thing you have to do is persuade them that it truly benefits them and the enterprise. Well, and I, you're persuading, but I think it's because you are helping to reveal the facts of what's yeah. working well for uh, the modern-day workplace, the modern-day worker, and how those kinds of companies are basically more profitable and faster growing. So yeah. I want to read from the intro and set the stage and then we can get into some of the the key points from this from this happy book about yeah. happy work. There you go. <laughs> so you write in the preface for over 30 years I've been honored to serve some of the best brands in the world as a consultant and strategic advisor. During that time I've seen highly respected CEOs, leaders and managers launch with the very best of intentions quality of work life initiatives. These leaders rightly believed that happy employees were better employees, and they sought to make changes that would fulfill those conditions. Regrettably, despite their high expectations, these programs nearly always failed. The metrics they designed to improve productivity, employee engagement, and even company profitability didn't budge. 
It was as if nothing had been done. My consulting firm has become something of an organizational hazmat team tasked with cleaning up after yet another ineffective quality of work life initiative. But failure is the best teacher. And over time, based on my experience with these organizations, I formulated powerful solutions that really work. The lessons I've learned are presented in the pages of this book. I'll share with you how to avoid the common pitfalls and how to leverage new best practices that provide predictable, measurable returns on your happiness initiative. You will also discover the corollary between happy customers, sales growth, and innovation in the furtherance of happy employees. I will share with you why you should avoid the vast survey industry and how to get real insights about what your employees want and need in order to build a workplace that your competitors will envy. Your newly forged happiness initiative will attract and keep the best talent in your marketplace, drive the best innovations, build scalable and predictable revenue growth, and significantly improve the returns on your organizational strategies. This book contains both deep research and 30 years of practical experience. It's my sincere hope that you will leverage these insights to avoid the common mistakes and enjoy the benefits of proven methods that deliver real results. So let's talk about something important. Okay, Nicholas Webb, I want to jump all the way to page 135 and get something out of the way. (laughs) You write, your company must actually be a good place to work. (laughs) (laughs) Explain why that's kind of important. Uh, That's so funny. It's outrageous, right? That you actually have to deliver on this. And you know, that in lies really the problem. Look, the reason that I love this new concept of human experience design, you know, replacing customer experience design, is that, you know, we really have to have happy employees and happy customers concurrently. They have to work together. And so most people that do this, first of all, the biggest problem is, is in order to innovate, you need to know what to invent. In order to do that, you need to know what your, not surprisingly, employees hate and what they love. And I can guarantee you one thing, employee surveys will never get you there, right? Ever, ever. Yes. You know, and one of the things that we found out is that they're pretty sure that the IT department, even when they're anonymous employee surveys, are monitoring them and finding out, you know, was it Sally in sector nine that said her boss is a whatever, right? Mm-hmm. So that's the problem. You can't get accurate insights from employee surveys. So they start with these ridiculous insights and from bad insights, they create bad solutions that are lame and their employees hate them. Uh, the other thing is, is that they still want to be authoritarians. They still see their employees as uh, manufacturing equipment. Uh, they yeah, still see- there. Yeah, right. And so until you have a philosophical shift, uh, you're never really ultimately going to do this. But when you look at organizations, I like In-N-Out Burger is a good example. In-N-Out Burger actually provides a gross strategy for all the employees that work there to where they have a pathway to a really good paying job. If you are a manager of an In-N-Out Burger franchise, not a franchise, but a, a, a store, then you can make a lot of money. I mean, compared to somebody who is a CPA or even a lawyer. And so it's the real job and they deliver real opportunities for advancement. And that's one of the keys to having a, a happy place to work. So I think that the, the, the first thing that we have to realize is we almost have to, and I think I mentioned it in the book, press the reset button. We have to start from a new perspective of how we gain insights about what the employees hate and love. And then we need to reinvent the experience because just like customer experience, we have to look at their journey at work. We have to look at their personas. We have to look at the things they love and hate. I think most people put a foosball table and some beanbag chairs and they call it a day. And it's just not that simple. Let's go back to the things that the CEOs and the CFOs are generally interested. You write that short-sighted leaders see a focus on employee happiness as an expense. Yeah. Let's, let's touch on how cultivating a happy workplace is like putting money in the bank. 
Yeah, well, if you take a look at the shopping list, and the shopping list could be easily 60 items, but some of them that I mentioned, you know, in the back of the book are achieve significant better returns on strategy. There was a study that shows that through collaborative ideation with your problem, opportunity, and customer-facing stakeholders, when you really partner with them and give them a reason to partner with you, you can get a 60% better return on stated enterprise goals and strategies. Think about that. Imagine, you know, starting your year out and getting a, a 60% better return on your stated goals. Uh, the only way that can happen is through the people-powered enterprise that you run. Mm-hmm. So getting a significant better on strategy, uh, you have uh, you can attract mission-critical talent. You know, I have a client that is in healthcare that's desperately in need of 4,000 employees. The problem is they're actually quitting healthcare because their work environment is so bad that they're going to technology companies and other companies that provide a quality. They're, in some cases, they're taking pay cuts because they care more about their experience. Um, you know, you take a look at driving scalable and predictable growth, ways of solving problems, pulling waste out of the enterprise. Anything you want to do within your organization is people-powered, yet we look at the people that serve our mission every day uh, in a way that's very incidental. I don't know, Nick Webb. I think it's easier than that. Next Friday is Hawaiian Shirt Day. <laughs> Why is the first chapter not a guide to buying the right foosball table for your employees? <laughs> well, you know, the, the truth of the matter is there is a definition of, and, and this was really interesting because I do a lot of work in in industries that are very, very stressful and painful. Mm-hmm. And uh, healthcare, for an example, most of my clients are three or they have three, four, 500 super expensive traveling nurses that are there on an itinerant basis because they can't get people to work there full time. Uh, And this isn't a a slight problem. This problem is epidemic across the country. So I think that the first thing we have to realize is that there is um, a formula for happy employees. The first thing is they have to really believe in your mission. And most importantly, they want to see the connective tissue between the work that they do and how they move a mission forward that they believe in. And that means they need to have a voice and they need to be recognized for their contribution for the forward movement of stated goals. The second thing is, is that every individual in work today wants their job to be part of their evolutionary pathway. They want it to be part of how they grow. And that's why all of my clients, I have them build out a personal growth strategy for each and every individual. Um, That way we can tailor what they want. What do you want out of this job? Are you looking for career advancement? Are you looking to stack micro learning credentials so you can move on to someplace else? What's your goal here and how can we help you make this the right place for you? It, 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 It really has to be done Uh, in a very personalized way. And then lastly, you know, most missions that really matter really are missions that are in the service of other people. And when you can really talk about the value you're providing to other humans, it really does create a lot greater stickability in terms of employees that want to stay there and serve your mission. So there is a formula. It works with mathematical certainty, but it doesn't have anything to do with the superficiality of uh, of things like uh, foosball tables, right? Or bagels on Friday. Bagels on Friday, right? And, and you know, what's really bad is I see a lot of organizations that are saying, hey, look, we need to drive, we need to, to really look at our marketing because we're, we need to double down in 2023. But one way to look at revenue is look at it from uh, four quadrants. Uh, one quadrant is what we do in marketing and sales to drive sales. And we put almost all of our effort in marketing, in outreach, in building a brand, reaching out to prospects, building infrastructure for marketing and and advertising and sales. But, you know, that's probably 25% of where the opportunity is. The other three elements of that opportunity have to do with customer retention. Yes. Right? Yeah. And how do you retain customers? Happy employees. You also need promotion. How do you get uh, your customers to promote you? Happy, the human relationship between an employee. And then lastly, how do you avoid losing business through the avoidance of deflection through social rating? You do it through happy employees. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you've ever been to a restaurant or if you've ever been to the, my yesterday, my daughter is, tra- is traveled to visit us here from Northern California and her flight was canceled by uh, Southwest Airlines. She waited on the phone for four hours when she finally got on the on the phone uh the person was mad at her 
<laughs> like I'm listening to it. Why are you mad at her? You know, but that poor customer service representative oh. had been beat up for four days straight. So how great is the quality of work life for that employee working for a, cust- a company that delivers bad experiences? So you can see the, 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 the relationship between happy employees require happy customers and happy customers require happy employees. That's why I'm saying that anybody that's building a marketing strategy or a customer experience strategy, you can't do it in a monolithic way. It has to be part of a balanced strategy that, inclu- that includes the experience of the employee. I mean, take a look at Starbucks. There was a time at Starbucks where you would go into Starbucks and you would be almost certainly uh, greeted by somebody who would look you in the face and say, hi, they would take your name. They would write your name on the cup, which is part of their magic. And then uh, you would sit there and listen to them, talk friendly to other customers and so on. It's not that way so much anymore. You know, they lost a lot of that during the scale and pretty much now it's a transactional uh, relationship at Starbucks. At least that's been my experience. You go there, you buy coffee, you leave. But you know, I think Dutch they would Bro- prefer that you drive through and not even come in. I drive through. Yeah, right. They, they, it has become a transaction, and it's hard to sell overpriced coffee, in my opinion, when it's just a transaction. Mm-hmm. But Dutch Brothers decided we can sell overpriced coffee in a new and exciting way. We are going to truly, truly be customer focused. The other day, I went in there. I hadn't been in there in three months, and I pull up, and they go, "Hey." Nick, I'm like, uh, what do I know you? You know, it's like, hey, how are you still traveling a lot? How could you possibly have remembered me? I don't even remember what I had for breakfast today. And you remembered me from three months ago and you are so excited. Well, they clearly are uh, viewers of the television show America's Most Wanted. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, but you know, that's pretty incredible, right? Yeah. So, but you, you like in our town, right across the street from, from Dutch brothers is Starbucks, no line at Starbucks. Dutch brothers has a line to where they have police actually directing traffic to go in there. Wow. There is virtually no difference in the overpriced coffee. The differences in the relationship and the relationship is precipitous of a great place to work. They love the people that work there. They have a really amazing culture. They encourage, uh, you know, humor and playfulness and they, they really focus on their employees having a great day and they share the love with the people that drive through. Wow. Great story. TV advertising is a powerful channel for business growth and it's a counterintuitive solution for businesses frustrated by the rising costs of digital marketing. But the traditional process for launching TV campaigns is expensive, time-consuming, and complex. That's why marketing architects flip the traditional process on its head. With all-inclusive TV advertising, they invest their own money to produce, analyze, and optimize your TV campaign. All you pay for is media, setting you up for rapid growth at a significant cost advantage. This approach to TV is so revolutionary... They wrote a book about it. It's called All-Inclusive TV, How Booming Brands Are Reimagining TV Advertising. It explores how a variety of brands are using TV to transform their businesses and how you can do the same. For a copy of the book, visit this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com or visit marketingarchitects.com slash book and tell them you heard about it on the Marketing Book Podcast. So, in the book, you argue that you can actually make your employees happy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. And the next thing you're going to tell me is that the great pyramids of Egypt were not built by slaves. <laughs> well, the data suggests that's probably right. And blew my mind. I did not know this. Yeah, and, and it's still you know a uh, a contentious topic. But you know, look I- at the end of the day, when you but see there's recent companies- archaeological evidence that shows that. They they weren't slaves. They were happy employees, right? That's right. Yeah, right. Talk about that. Because they believed in a mission. They believed in this mission. It was a spiritual mission. It was one that they, as near as we can tell, was one that they really believed in, and they were not motivated through uh, you know, whips and chains, they were motivated because they believed in a mission. And they believed that the mission, that their purpose, that there was a direct connection with their own life purpose and that mission. And that's when magic things happen. You know, one of the things I discovered way back when in, in researching the innovation mandate is that the most innovative companies are happy companies. And the happiest companies are the most innovative. 
And the reason for that is that innovation is not just people-powered, it's powered through collaborative ideation, meaning that we need the people that come in every day that are facing problems, that are facing opportunities, and most importantly, facing customers, <clears throat> so that we can get their insights and transmute those insights into awesome solutions for our customers and for our markets. And that's how it's done. That's how you create new ideas. And What's exciting in 2023 and beyond, the greatest innovations that are going to happen, they're going to come from your employees that are happy, and they're not going to necessarily be bright, shiny objects. More often, they're going to be new enterprise methodologies, new systems, new ways to save money, new ways to deliver value, leveraging enabling technologies or connection architecture. We're using this incredible quiver of new and emerging capabilities through really, really engaged and happy employees to take organizations to the moon. That's what's so fun about this is that when you do it right, and it's easy to do it right, then you, the leader and the enterprise benefit. And, and you know, at some level, this is going to sound corny, but you and I both have, you know, first responders as kids. And, yes. You know, my daughter woke up uh, and decided she wanted to be a paramedic with her life. Now, at the time, I was working as an adjunct professor at a medical school, and she could have gone to our PA program or a medical school tuition-free, and she had the grades for it. And she said, no, I'm going to make very little money uh, to do a job that's insanely stressful. So I literally got on an airplane, and I flew to her, and I sat down at a Starbucks, and I said, look, I do not want you to be a paramedic. I want you to go to medical school. I want you to take yourself to the highest. And she goes, dad, you've told me since I was a little girl to do the things that I love, to do the things I'm passionate about. I don't care about the money. This is what I love. Mm. And I felt like an idiot. <laughs> I, like, yeah, I guess I did say that. She said, dad, you're Nick Webb. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> And so, you know, the, the truth of the matter is that's the magic, right? That company has an employee that has connected what she does with who she is. And we can make that connection. We win. So there's a few prerequisites. First of all, don't hire creepy people, right? Don't hire bad people. Um, and if you take a look at organizations that have happy cultures, they're incredibly judicious, about and that and and don't get me wrong i think there are opportunities for people to be re rehabilitated that have personality disorders and so on but we don't want to hire them right so we really have to be really have to front load this process with some really thoughtful uh, and as you know i do slam a lot of the the personality testing that uh, that is done widely it's a great industry oh yeah um, yeah well, we we can, we can talk uh talk more about that yeah that's um that's so true yeah and i'm uh I, I know exactly which. It's like my son, who's a paramedic. It's like a a life's calling. Yeah, it is. He really loves that, and I just I just couldn't do it. And you and I have both ridden along in ambulances with our our children who are first responders, and I'm not going to do that again. I, I said Never. my son. I said I'm I'm unbelievably proud of you, but I'm not going to be able to ride with you again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he said it's okay, right. Dad. Yeah. So, well, let's talk a little bit more about that because you talk about why a lot of you know a lot of people think it's oh it's the it's the pay, but you write about how there are a lot of men and women to volunteer to join an organization that offers low pay, tough working conditions and. Uh, personal risk. You know, happy work is found in unlikely places, including a place I used to work, the circus. I'm kidding. It, it's actually the U.S. <laughs> Army. Oh, yes. That's a rough line of work for a lot of people. And yet they have incredible, uh, incredibly low turnover. They got people signing up for more. Oh, I mean, I, I did some research uh, years ago on Army Strong and had the opportunity. I was thinking, okay, I'm going to find out what these, I, I just, I went into that research with no idea what I was going to discover. I found the most interesting, smart, capable, brilliant people ever in, in the Army. And they, they ran the Army Strong program. And it was, you know, we used to believe that you either go to prison or you go to the Army. Today, you know, people are begging to get into the Army because it's really a mission-driven enterprise that you could die from that you don't get paid very much for and there are they can't even begin to take the people that want to be in the army so it's not uh, they've done that by making that mission matter and and doing a great job of 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 building people within the uh, within army strong that's what i loved about it what i the individuals that i had the privilege of interviewing 
uh, that experience in the army for them was transformative. It made them from it made them into better people, and and that's what our organization should be doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, has this ever been effective, or have you ever seen companies try it without having uh, leadership acceptance and prioritization? Basically, CEO buy-in. Yeah. No, you can't. It's this is this really has to be the CEO and the board of trustees or the board of directors making this mission critical. I'll tell you, I had the opportunity just a few weeks ago to train 74,000 Mayo Clinic employees on workplace happiness. And to their credit, you know, the Mayo Clinic is an amazing organization and they are really, really committed to patient centrism and employee happiness. And so much, in fact, their CEO made a commitment of what they call uh, their joy initiative. And and for somebody and with all the turmoil that's going on in healthcare today, for a CEO to prioritize joy as an enterprise mandate really shows the incredible level of sophistication uh, at the Mayo Clinic and why they are so revered around the world. And so it does require that this, that, that the, that it, it requires more than just the optics. It requires the systems and the tools and the processes and the budgets and the cultural transformations that have to occur to really make this matter. Again, the good news is, is that an organization that applies this kind of work, you know, should expect a 10 to a hundred X return on investment. It's not particularly expensive, but the benefits are multifaceted. They're across every department. They certainly uh, have a great impact in revenue and profitability. They have impact in reducing cost, improving innovation. I mean, it's hard to think of an, or, of an area within the organization that's not significantly improved. And I think <clears throat> the other thing to keep in mind is that we're in the experience economy, and we've been talking about the experience economy for a long time as it relates to customer experience. But, you know, when you think about it, when, when you and I were young lads, you know, we would buy a record, and we saw that record as a possession. And then later on, Apple, you know, we, we went through cassettes and they became, and 8-track uh, tapes, you know, they, they weren't a possession anymore because they weren't a, a, an album artwork. And then later, Apple turned them into digital files that you could buy. And then Spotify turned them into digital files that you could borrow. Mm-hmm. And so we don't buy music. We, we experience it. On a, subscrip- on a subscription basis. We don't buy uh, videos. We experience them on Netflix on a subscription basis. We don't buy weekend cabins. We experience them uh, through Airbnb. We don't buy cars. We live in the city. We experience them through ride sharing. The list goes on and on and on. We are all about these micro moments of experience and especially the emerging, you know, the, the millennials and the Zoomers they are absolutely looking for a good experience. In fact, 60%, according to some studies, will take the experience over the cash. And as a young lad, I was trained to transfer, you know, to basically sell my time to a company for cash. It wasn't very romantic, but that's how most of us uh, grew up, trading our time in, on planet Earth for money. That's not where the market is today. And that's why we hear these terms about the quiet resignation or even new terms, which are even scarier, called um, the uh, quiet retention or, uh, you know, and other terms like that, where not only are they not uh, really working, they're hiding key information from their employers. So they become irreplaceable by knowing the secret of where the knobs and dials are. So the, the workplace has changed a lot. And I can't think of anything that we should focus on more if we want to grow revenue and grow sales than the way in which we build a substrate of a thoughtful, collaborative, and innovative workforce. Right. And uh, earlier in the book, you write that for much of human history, (laughs) employers have believed that misery is the most powerful motivator of their workers. So, and I I think of those as the good old days, uh, Nick, but (laughs) uh, maybe that's because I was in the... uh, in the military, no, they, 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 the best leadership I ever had was in the military. They really take that seriously, and occasionally it's kind of a life or death thing. So <laughs> that's that's right. part of the reason why. Indeed. Yeah. So let's jump ahead. Measuring something is often the first step towards improving it. Yep. How do you go about measuring employee happiness? Well, I think there's actually some of the problem is in the genesis of the measurement, right? Um, we look at employees as, a, you know, the, we look at it as a risk mitigation activity, or we look at it like a supply chain activity. We look at it in a very mechanical way. And when you look at things mechanically, you want to be able to create, you know, dashboards and so on. 
And so the easy thing to do, the lazy thing to do is to use one of the many uh, employee survey tools to get uh, information where you ask them questions that you think, you know, do you feel like you're supported by your supervisor? Uh, yeah, I'm going to say no. And this is probably going to get tracked <laughs> by IT and I'll probably, yeah. you know, it's just come on, right? I mean, yeah. come on. Or this kind of thing. What would you say you do here? <laughs> right. And so, Which, and so you the, talk about how these traditional employee surveys do not work. And, and actually, don't. you touched on this earlier. You talk about the survey industrial complex. Yeah, right. <laughs> Let's, yeah, don't, don't hold back there. Well, it's the ultimate money. I, you know, that's the business to be in where you create these survey platforms and uh, you have people assume that the information they're getting, you know, as you know, I've been very critical of, you know, promoter data and, and uh, other, uh, you know, customer surveys. It's even worse with employee surveys because there are other things that really drive inaccuracy. And so the really the best way to get good insights is you have to have listening sessions. You have to have uh, you know, things like experiential improvement loops uh, through collaborative ideation where you're saying, okay, uh, I, I'll give you an example. I can't mention any names here, but I did an, I, uh, I, and I do a lot of these and it's a great way to get started with what we call a happiness hackathon. And with a happiness hackathon, you get, you know, your team leaders and, uh, you know, people that represent a department, if you're a large organization and you say, we're going to go through a process here to really talk about what we hate and what we love. And I, it took me about three weeks to get to their legal department to use the hate word because they were afraid that seriously, they were afraid that employees are going to say stuff. They hate it, I guess. And, and this is not the first time that's happened, right? So we asked during the facilitation of this hackathon, tell us what you hate about your work. Oh, I hate the fact that I can't park here. Uh, we've told our supervisor oh, wait, forever. First, did you have to make them feel safe that they weren't going to get in trouble? Yeah, well, you know, it, it's interesting uh, in this particular organization, uh, they and I require this, that somebody within the organization, basically, we call it a safe place to innovate. We They have to be able to say nobody's going to die here. Right. And I, I, I think at the beginning, it was, you, you always see this to where, well, it'd be nice if I had, you know, then it gets real. It gets real. <laughs> it starts to get but real. Nick, right. Does this become like a litmus test when you're in the early discussion stages with a new client to, to determine if they're even going to allow certain things oh, yeah. to happen for you to be successful. Because of the impact nature of my practice, I have the great luxury of turning down projects all the time. Mm -hmm. And if they're not really committed to this, we won't, we, we don't want to, yeah. yeah, it's, it's, it, here's the worst thing you can do is here, here's the proclamation I have to make is that happy employees should be the number one priority of every CEO in America in 2023. And if you are a marketing executive, it should be your priority. If mm -hmm. you are wherever you live, this should be your priority because everything that you have to do in a squirrely economy uh, with a very, very bizarre workforce and work environment, you really need to do this right. And, and 2023 is the time, right? And that's why I wanted this to be the first episode of the year 2023. Yeah, there you go. I mean, everything we talk about in marketing can't be enabled without cool people that love what we're doing, believe in the mission and want to move it forward, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But during this hackathon, I, I, it was incredible to me to see people saying, hey, I hate this. I hate that. And then we go back to our office and we say, okay, they're asking for training to how to be better at working remotely. So here's a, you know, we have a program called the Certified Remote Workers. So let's certify them all to be certified remote workers to make their life better and to improve the way in which they, uh, they work with the mothership. Let's get our leaders to understand how to support remote workers to be able to make their, their job better, you know, while working remote with a baby on their lap. Let's, let's fix all this stuff. And then they said, we wanted, uh, we wanted this, we wanted that. There was 47 things that we discovered that were real serious problems and all of them were super easy to fix. It was so easy. <laughs> but it nobody like, asked. <laughs> right. Nobody asked, you know, uh, and, and so we give it to the client. The client says, thanks, we're out, you know. You know, next phase, let's fix this stuff. Yeah, we're kind of not really into it. We got other stuff to do, right? But have you ever seen the TV show Undercover Boss? 
yeah, I think so. Yeah, I, I've heard about it. And I've certainly read it's, about it. It's a really popular show, and this is um, one episode in particular. Uh, there was a CEO of a fast food company. And uh, he wanted to, uh, so they put a rubber nose and glasses and a wig on him and, and make him completely. And of course, people with the rank and file didn't know what he looked like anyway. So he shows up and under the premise that he was being filmed uh, for his first job. And so that's why the, the employees just assumed that the, the camera crew was there because this was this guy who was in his midlife and he was got his first job, right? And, and in this particular, he realized that the jobs that they had were lame. The systems were out, were ridiculous. The processes were outdated. The customers hated them. They got yelled at all day long. And at the end of the program, the CEO is literally crying with nine or 10 of the employees that he got to witness firsthand. Oh yeah. There's one more thing. That's every episode. Every one of them is the same. There's, it's a why aren't we going and collaborating with and learning from and experiencing with our employees instead of looking at sterile, inaccurate employee survey data? It's a joke. Yes, yes. And there's a whole, if I'm not mistaken, there's a whole chapter on real ratings, which is based on yeah. what, what finding out what your customer, what your uh, your employees love and what they what they hate. Yeah. But they're not all going to love and hate the same things. And that's why I wanted to right. talk about this, I thought, rather innovative. Uh, and I realize I'm talking to Nick Webb, so I have to be careful using the word innovative. But um, you you have this uh, concept called employee archetypes. So there's yeah. uh, eight, and we won't go into all, all of them. But there are these what, – what's interesting to me is that there are – it's probably more accurate – and it shows the the eight different types, but it also eliminates pretty much the need to classify employees by uh, gender or by um, age or education level. Talk about these right. uh, this this concept and how that they just seemed like eight much cleaner buckets. Yeah, well, first of all, I think this idea of using market personification as a way of creating the personification of employees or customers, for that matter, is a joke. I mean, the old days, we'd say, well, a 23-year-old uh, Hispanic female located in San Francisco. I mean, what a talk about prejudice. Talk about racist. I mean, why would you think that this human being, uh, you know, is anything based on those superficial you know, I mean, it's just well, crazy. It's just right? less so, relevant to the the workplace. Right. And as you may recall from, you know, my book, What Customers Hate, what's far more important is to find out what your employees hate and what they love. And you mm -hmm. can build hate love personas just as simple as that. I borrowed some standard personas uh, and there's many takes on, so there's not a lot of novelty there in, in these various personas. There's They're used in marketing and, and, and uh, they're used in uh, customer experience, but you can break them down based on some things that we tend to find interesting in the way that we can serve them. I, rather than going into all of the personas, what mm -hmm. I would say is that the goal of the persona isn't to pigeonhole people. It's to really understand the things that they hate so we can eliminate those things and find out the things that are important that they love personally at, the, at, an, as, at an individual level, not a team level or mm -hmm. a company level, right. so that we can architect the personal growth plan, what we call a PGP, to help them in, in really having a beautiful journey with our organization. And it works with mathematical certainty. It's simple and it's straightforward. It seems like they'd be very tight clusters uh, once you start to realize what these uh, different employees have. They have different, different motivations. They're all good folks. They're good for certain yeah. things. Um, but you need to acknowledge that they're not all like a piece of machinery, which you uh, mentioned earlier. So moving on, you write that in order to have happy employees – it stands to reason that you should have happy jobs. <laughs> yeah. Explain what you mean by a happy job. Well, I think one of the problems is, is that we really don't take a look at the pain associated with certain job types and the way in which people uh, work within their organization. And, and uh, you know, they're just endemically guaranteed to be miserable for an employee. Uh, there was one actually episode of uh, Undercover Boss where it was an individual that cleaned portable toilets. Right. And so that person was so proud of his job and loved what he did. He's singing the whole time that he's cleaning toilets. Right. So I think it really, there are bad jobs and there, and 
And, but we have to connect the right person with the right job. I think that's one lesson. The other thing is, is that we typically create these sort of punitive, miserable uh, uh, jobs that nobody ever could be happy in. And we have to retool those to be able to make them real realistic. And that can be just too much work for one person. It could be the nature of the way in which they do everything and, and the way in which they're supported. I mean, Southwest Airlines is another good contemporaneous example um, of, of, of these poor employees that are taking the wrath of, of what may in fact have been uh, some bad planning on the part of, uh, of Southwest. So, yeah, I think in general we you know look at the jobs that you have there and ask yourself would you want to do this and if if you if the answer is no what can you do to make it a good job. Mhm. Yeah. So you talk about this uh, happiness ecosystem that w- where everyone is a customer. Explain what what you mean by this happiness ecosystem. Right. So I mean, you know, we what's weird is there's this Crips and Blood vibe going on between HR and marketing, right? <laughs> HR has a chief person, you know, people officer, or they have the, you know, the chief human resource officer. In some case, they have workforce development. In some case, they have a CTO, a chief training officer. So you have all these job titles around employee around employees, and they're they're very dis, they're many ways dis, dysfunctional, they're fractional. Uh, and they don't really have a forward movement in my experience. And then we have marketing and, uh, you know, we have a customer experience, a strategy and, and so on. I think the best organizations in 2023 right now, as we're speaking, are building eight out HX strategies. And the reason for that is they have to look at the ecosystem and the ecosystem includes business partners. Uh, it includes suppliers. Uh, it includes distributors. It includes anybody that we have the ability to impact and people that have the ability to impact us. We need to look at them in ways in which we can make that relationship better. And and in other words, we really want to have a broad customer experience strategy that goes across the entire ecosystem. And I have a shopping list of some examples in the book of what that ecosystem looks like in terms of who those participants are. But it's basically anybody that's within our within our world that we that we serve, how can we make their world happier. And, you know, my, uh, I have an identical twin brother who owns a company and he is uh, very early on in his very fast growing business, developed a strategy to make certain that they delivered exquisite experiences to the people they buy product from. Like, what would you even care? Well, as a result of that, when supplies were short and new opportunities came about, that partnership that was based on on, on really trying to deliver happiness to even a vendor uh, wound up being one of his success secrets. And I think that's the case with most organizations. They treat their customers, their vendors, their, I even mentioned that neighbors that in their neighboring buildings, everybody gets treated uh, in a way to help them be happier when you're looking at cultures that focus on happiness as an enterprise priority. Right. And it's, everyone knows SaaS, software as a service. You talk about Haas, happiness right. as a strategy. Right. Uh, that's great. So I want to quote from uh, page 131, chapter 11. You write, much has been written about the journey of your customers. In two of my best-selling books, What Customers Crave and What Customers Hate, I presented fresh new insights into the customer's touchpoint relationship with your brand. The core of the concept is this. At each of the five touch points, your customers have different expectations and experiences. You need to be aware of this and architect the customer's journey accordingly. From the first touch, which is before the customer has any substantive interaction with your brand or your people, to the last touch, which is after the sale when your customer is once again a free agent and may or may not choose to buy from you again, your relationship with your customer is evolving. It requires that you stay focused on the reality of the moment, not what you hope will happen or think should happen, but what's actually happening with your customer. The touchpoint journey with each of your employees is much the same, but in many ways, even more volatile and fraught with risk. And then on the next page, you write, the employee's journey with your company comprises a series of five stations or touchpoints. At each of these touchpoints, the employee and the company build a relationship through countless daily interactions. These interactions may be brief or prolonged. At every touchpoint, the company has the opportunity to create either a feeling of love and happiness by the employee or a feeling of hate. Can you talk about these five stages yeah. uh, for your employee? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, as you know, this is precipitous of the research I've done, you know, with what customers crave and what customers hate around customer journey mapping. And so think about it from this perspective. You you need really cool, super energetic, passionate people to move your mission forward. That's for sure. Especially if you want to drive sales and growth. And so 
the first thing that they do is they search you. Uh, some data now says that 96% of all potential employees, 96% will vet you out. In other words, do a credit check on you in this pre-touch moment by looking at Glassdoor. And if you have bad ratings on Glassdoor because you're creepy and treat your people poorly, <laughs> well, you're probably not going to attract somebody that's going to grow your organization and, and really deliver on your marketing and sales strategies. They're not even going to reach yes. out to you in the first place. They're going to stop out. at that point, just like somebody trying to research a company to buy from them. Right. And look, you can never have a perfect glass door. You get people that whatever, but you can, uh, the, the organizations, what I found was really interesting when I did, uh, the research on what customers, uh, crave, or I'm sorry, what customers hate is I found that there was a direct corollary between glass door ratings and Google ratings. So in other words, customers that like you also are, are, are buying from a company where the employees like the job and vice versa. So that always is the case. And that's why HX is so important is we need to be able to do both if we really want to drive scalable growth. Marketing efforts and marketing strategies are useless without the, the enablement of the people power dynamic of HX. And so the pre-touch moment is that glass door vetting moment. That's where they're going to decide if you are somebody that they see as home. The first touch is really oftentimes the interview and onboarding process. And people make so many mistakes. You know, the onboarding part should be celebratory. It should be beautiful. It should be memorable. It should be something that they want to write a book about. It was so good. But yet it right? seems like such an afterthought. Like, oh, here's your desk. 100%. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, here's it. Yeah, stay in the corner and shut up, right? Yeah. It's really that bad. And so why aren't we really putting together thoughtful designs for that first moment? Because we know in customer experience that 80% of the opinion that a customer is going to have about us in perpetuity oftentimes is forged in that first touch moment. The old adage that, you know, first impressions last a lifetime. That's certainly the case with this first touch point for employees. Yet I don't know anybody that are that's talking about employee happiness that really talks about purposefully designing a employee journey that's that is really special and then the next touch point is what we call the core touch point what's it like to work here what does it feel like what does it smell like what does it look like you know what are my coworkers like what is my boss like is there is it fun do i see myself evolving here do i believe in this mission are we really serving people do i have a voice here those are the things that have to be thought out and put into a very thoughtful hx strategy that really delivers on that core moment now, remember, this isn't gratuity. This is not a gift. This is you doing smart things as a leader of an organization because they have a 10 to 100x return on time and money investment. So, you know, you've got to get out of this idea that being nice to the zoo animals is just gratuity because it's not. It's truly self-serving. I believe it's the right thing to do. But it's also the right thing to do from my consulting perspective for an organization. And then the next touch point is what we call the um, last touch moment. And this is really the way in which uh, if somebody decides to move on um, and they take, they, you know, they're, they're leaving us. What is that exit experience like? Can we make it even it's if usually we're a bitter divorce, you know, it almost always is. Yeah. And I learned in high school, you can never break up with a girl and have them like you afterwards. <laughs> It's just, I've never been able to pull that one off. I know guys do it, but I was, I was never successful at that. So can we change that? Can we really create the instrumentation and the resources and the toolbox to really say, hey, look, you know, um, we're going to let you go, <laughs> but I also wanted to do something for you. You know, we appreciate you trusting us with this opportunity. I, I want to get you in a training program, if you're open to it, to really kind of help you bolster your skills in, in, in uh, interpersonal communications. And, and again, I, it's totally up to you. But I, I really, I believe in you and I know you have a future and I want to leave this relationship with adding some value. I mean, can we add those kinds of toolboxes? Because if we do and we can move the glass door needle, we can attract the people that we need to attract. You know, as I mentioned earlier, there are unemployed people and there are talented people, but there are no unemployed, talented people in the current marketplace in the current talent drought, not the employee drought, but the talent drought. 
We have to encourage people to come to work to for us and away from somebody they're currently working for because talented people are already employed. So again, that's the last touch. And then the, the, the final of the journey is what we call the in-touch moment. How can we stay in touch with them? Hey, listen, I just wanted to drop you a note. I hope that that uh, interpersonal communication skill worked, uh, program worked out for you. I'd love to know how things are going for you and, and hope that I, I really want to see you progress because I, I believe in you and I'm anxious to follow you in your career. Now, is that person going to go put a bad glass door rating? Are they going to say, hey, look, I worked at this company. It wasn't a fit for me, but you really should talk to them because they're good people. Yeah. Um, and also, you might be able to have them come back out of retirement if you needed them for something, maybe a different project. But also, they're going right. to suggest your company to other people and uh, be a, you know, a referral source. You know, it's uh, funny how in the last few years, it almost seems like I've spoken to more companies who say, I don't actually want more customers right this minute because I don't have the right employees. Right. I, in fact, my, my uh, accountant, the, the guy that owns the accounting firm that I deal with, he had said, I, I don't really promote my company anymore. I take care of our customers and we're growing quite a bit organically, but I don't really want to go after new business because I can't problem. get enough accountants. Right. It's a, it's a, you know, there's a, there's an old formula in business that production minus uh, sales equals scrap, right? Well, it's also true that sales minus production e equals scrap. And so mm -hmm. you're wasting, you, you, I mean, think about the dollars that you're losing by not having the infrastructure to be able to support new opportunities. And we also have to have fluidity. You know, we, in, in a squirrely economy, we have to be able to turn on productivity and turn off productivity by really having employees that have some flexibility and time and, and, uh, and the things that they do. Uh, the only way that happens is that they have to be really happy at their work. Mm. Yeah. Well, before we wrap up, let me ask you just to recap some of the common pitfalls that can, uh, quoting here, result from an organization's failure to achieve the robust cultural transformation it needs to sustain happiness day after day, year after year. Well, you know, I, there's a list in the book on, on uh, page 154, but I, I think that, you know, it's, uh, it's sort of the tip of the proverbial, proverbial iceberg. This is the big problems. And the number one biggest problem, and that's why it's number one on the list, is it's just a box we check. I, I would have to say that, and this is sad, but I believe it's accurate that probably 80, 90% of the time that people do a quality of work life or a cultural transformation initiative, they had a discussion with their board of trustees or their leadership team and said, you know, we got to get people happier here. It's kind of bad. Our glass door numbers are tanking, right? And so they <laughs> our, don't our employee get, churn is off the charts, <laughs> like Amazon right. fulfillment centers. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. And so they're they're doing it from a place of desperation rather than inspiration. And and this really needs to come from a from a different mindset. So most the number one problem is people just check it off as a bumper sticker or or the they, they see it as a, a little tick on a checklist. Right. It reminds um, me of, we have a, a problem. Let's change the logo. That'll fix things. <laughs> right. There you go. Yeah, exactly. Our sales are off. Change the logo. <laughs> right. And, and so, you know, it's just, uh, you know, that's a, uh, that is one that is just, it really represents the overwhelming majority of the problems. And, and I see it with innovation. I see it with strategic excellence is that, you know, they're so busy in the operation of solving problems that could be fixed through a happy workforce that they don't focus on a happy workforce. It's unbelievable to me. And I guess, you know, from my perch, being able to see it done right and, and watching it go bad, I would say this, if you're not really, really, I mean, for realsy, really, really committed to doing this, don't start. Because once your employees hear you starting to talk about a journey of joy and happiness and, and really cultural transformation to really make it a meaningful workplace, they expect something. And if well, you don't, and also don't, they can, employees are really good at sniffing out BS. My, that's my experience. No, hundred percent. And they want to, they want to see a change. They want to see a change in their life experience. Remember, you know, a happy workplace is where we try to pull as much pain away as we possibly can and reinstall it with pleasure and meaningful work, because that's what people want. They want to believe in the mission. They want to evolve. And if we can do that, the impact to the organization is unbelievable. I would argue that any marketing strategy in 2023 that doesn't include a thoughtful HX strategy isn't a complete, uh, it is a fractional strategy, hundred percent. Mm-hmm. But I know we don't have a lot of time, but I'll touch base on a few of the other ones. You know, I think the other thing is, is that you really need to begin from the position because you have to communicate this to departmental and uh, leaders and boards and, and other uh, leadership. You really do have to say, okay, why are we doing this? 
right? And I, I hope that includes the humanity of why we're doing this because we, uh, we're human and we believe in people and we believe in, in, in trying to be good stewards of the people that, uh, that serve um, our mission every day. But, but there's also, it also has to be clear about the business case. And so I always suggest that, you know, build a business case though. What's in it for me, you know, the WWIFM or whatever it is, right? What's mm-hmm. in it for me radio. You've got to really make sure that they, they know why they're doing it. Because if you don't have that commitment, uh, you don't really have the staying power. And that's where a lot of these initiatives, initiate, initiatives fail. I think the other problem is, is that it's fractional. Meaning that they, you know, they did, they had the raw raw session. They did the, they they have bumper stickers, and uh, you know, I actually did an initiative, a, a, a keynote presentation for a company was launching their happiness uh, initiative, and uh, it was really a big thing. I mean, they they spent millions of dollars on this event, and they had you know clowns, you know, juggling bowling pins. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was whatever, right? And and then afterwards, I said, this is incredible. It really looks like you guys wanted to get together and have a good time. And so what are you going to do from a practical perspective, though, to improve their life when they get back to their cubicle? Oh, yeah, we're not doing that. I mean, we got stuff going on. Are you what? Are you kidding? <laughs> if you could just go ahead and make sure you do that from now on, that would be great. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, that was it, right? And so, you know, look, it it has to, it can't be fractional. It has to be a complete system. I think another thing I talk about is it can't be monodirectional. If you look at it just from the perspective, right, yeah. of how it serves you. Uh, I also mentioned that it can't be vague. It has to be big. You have to build a, a, and that's one thing that I believe I talk about in some detail in the book, and I certainly do it with my clients, is you have to build an internal branding uh, around this and you have to commit to that branding. You have to, you have to make sure everybody understands what this is and how it benefits them and how to access the resources. And, um, and also, you know, uh, I love, like there's a great, uh, a company called Lemonade Insurance. And mm-hmm. if you go to Lemonade ins- Insurance, it's like the simplest website in the world. It takes 60 seconds to get insurance and it takes 90 seconds to be able to file a claim. And there's almost nothing on the website other than simplicity and ease of use. And we have to do the same thing with these initiatives. We have to make it really clear as to how they benefit from it. But the other thing that I, I love about Lemonade Insurance is that uh, I read one of their blog posts recently where it talked about what idiots they were in the launch of their solution. They said, God, we made this mistake, we made that mistake, and what were we thinking? And boy, you can't help but to love these people after you listen to the incredible uh, you know, authenticity of, uh, of what they did right and what they did wrong. Yeah, but Nicholas <laughs> Webb... Simplicity is hard. <laughs> and that's why I laughed at one of the seven common pitfalls is they stop because it hurts. <laughs> <laughs> they this stop is hard. That was another one. I love that too, right? Because, and that was the thing they got, they, you know, they, they put all the work into it and then they realized, oh, we have to actually deliver on all of the things that we created. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like when I started this podcast years ago, the first 10 books I had already read. And then I got to about the 11th episode and I realized, wait a minute, I'm actually going to have to read each one of these books. It was yeah. like, it was too late. <laughs> yeah, well you're, well, you're the most well-read person in the universe. I mean, Well, I hey, if I were smarter, I wouldn't need to read all these books. But hey, <laughs> let me mention one other thing about the book, and we won't go into it, but um, because you're so dialed into these CEO types, on the very last chapter, uh, you write, the busy CEO may ask, how can I cultivate a happy company in real life? The task seems overwhelming. I don't know where to start. And this whole last chapter is the leader's guide to making workplace happiness real. I guess I was a little surprised because it was about 20 pages of pictures of whips. No, I'm kidding. It's real <laughs> It's real specific. Uh, yeah. It's almost like they could start there, but um, very, yeah. very, I think that if a CEO reads it, it may have an impact. So Nick, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? Uh, this sounds stark and maybe uh, hyperbole, but the truth of the matter is, is that employee happiness is the substrate for anything that you want to have happen in 2023 and beyond. So, mm-hmm. 
Um, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say if you want to grow your business, if you want to be able to increase sales, if you want to be able to improve the quality and the innovative nature of your marketing initiatives, if you want to be able to reduce costs, if you want to you know attract mission critical smart people that'll help you get there, everything that you want to do within your organization. And again, what's surprising to me, and I've seen it before in collaborative ideation and using things like ESNs, is that you know organizations that have a good culture that are collaborating, they're getting sixty percent better return on strategy. So my takeaway is take this serious. It is the mandate, in my view, of what the best organizations will be using as sort of their foundation by which they build their updated strategies on. Mm, Very, very well said. What is one thing a listener could do today, any listener, to, to put in action, get the ball rolling, thinking more about this? Well, if they have a team, get a team together and say, what would happen if we asked our reports what they hate about their work here? Great. Do that? Yes. <laughs> it's surprising. Like, I think I've given this example before when my customers say, if I asked my wife, you know, what do you hate about me? I, I, you know, she would be a little bit jarred by that, I think, initially. But then I think she might say, well, you know, you could pick up your laundry and, you know, every once in a while you could exploit, right? So, but it's a Why different question. Why do you question. let these knuckleheaded podcasters interview you? Really? Yeah. <laughs> you have to deal with that. But I mean, it's a different question and it evokes a different response. And I think it's more authentic and I think it's brave, right? For us to ask somebody, what's, what are we not doing right? I think it, I think in many ways it's almost rhetorical and that we're asking a question that's really almost a statement. We know we're not perfect. How are we imperfect and how can we work together to make it perfect? So I would say, get your team together or ask yourself, you know, what am I really doing here to be able to understand where the pain points are for the people that come in and serve my mission every day? And is it possible for me to significantly improve that? And if I did, you know, I know for a fact, because the data is there, that this is going to help my enterprise. So I think you have to start by starting. And I think that's the starting point. That is great. What do our reports hate? Oh, my goodness. Well, are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or looking forward to reading? Well, once again, you know, I, when I was uh, locked down, you know, I wrote uh, Lucid Leadership and I wrote uh, One Step Ahead. And they ironically, all three of these books hit it. They say never as an author, ever, ever, uh, you know, do that. But I did, which of course is why I did it. So I've been sort of immersed in those two other books to do a lot. I always, my biggest inspirational book I, I, I always reference is, uh, is uh, David Schwartz's book, The Magic of Thinking Big. It's an older book, but it's a powerful book. And I know that several other authors, uh, Seth Godin speaks about it in his work. Um, we've all been moved by his teaching and, and, uh, and his common sense approach towards business and life. And, and that continues to be one of my favorite books. Mm. Well, you know, during the lockdown, some of us uh, hosted daily cocktail uh, conversations with authors. No, no, no. Nicholas Webb just has to start cranking out even more books. So, should <laughs> <Right. laughs> sure just medicine to this. That's right. That's right. Well, that's great. And this was one of the three happy work, right? Yep. Because you sent me all three uh, along with a very nice uh, bag. I appreciate that. So, at marketingbookpodcast.com, we're going to include links to all these things that are linkable, like the past interviews, uh, the books that have been mentioned, your sites, your LinkedIn profile, your Twitter account. And now a word to you, dear listener, I want to ask you a big favor. Please reach out in some way to Nick and congratulate him on this book. Thank him for being a guest on the Marketing Book Podcast again. Clearly, he has a high, high threshold for pain. Send him a message (laughs) on LinkedIn or Twitter or, or his website. And if you've want copy of the book sent to your CEO anonymously, just buy a copy, let him know about it, and he will send it off. Uh, guests on the show, though, have told me how much they really enjoy hearing from Marketing Book Podcast listeners. And not just because, like Nicholas Webb, Marketing Book Podcast listeners are so ridiculously good looking. And if you are listening on your smartphone and you've subscribed to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app like Spotify or Apple Podcast, all these links can be found by going to this episode right now and clicking on this episode's website link. Final quote, page 179. The intention of this book is to challenge the framework and beliefs of the traditional company culture best practice. Getting out of your comfort zone and taking a fresh look at the happiness of your employees requires courage and a willingness to be open to new ideas. The principles revealed on these pages are based on a lifetime of study and hands-on experience working shoulder-to-shoulder with leaders and employees alike, and they've been used in my own practice with significant success across multiple industries and organizations. I trust that your application of these practical solutions will serve you and your organization well." 
The book is Happy Work, How to Create a Culture of Happiness. The author is Nicholas Webb. Nick, thank you very much for returning to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. Special thanks to this episode's sponsor, Marketing Architects, creators of the all-inclusive TV advertising concept that's so revolutionary, they wrote a book about it. For a copy of the book, All-Inclusive TV, How Booming Brands Are Reimagining TV Advertising, visit this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com or visit marketingarchitects.com slash book and tell them you heard about it on the Marketing Book Podcast. And if you are one of the legions of listeners who have left an iTunes review, please let me return your kind favor by mailing you some Marketing Book Podcast stuff. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world and I'll drop it in the mail. And remember the words of the late, great Jim Rohn who said, formal education will make you a living, self-education will make you a fortune.